FYI, this podcast contains spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast that goes snicked. Snicked, I'm your host, Jason. I jump alive for everyone. Venable. <laughs> this a uh, flashback episode. We're going to talk about the Gambit miniseries from 1993. So, it's kind of a preamble to our combined nine years of the podcast slash flashback 30 years of the X-Men. And uh, we're talking about, um, probably of a couple of these episodes, about how some of these miniseries, like the Gambit miniseries and the Sabretooth miniseries and the Deadpool miniseries, uh, were kind of an expansion of the X line. You know, they're not specifically called out as celebrating the 30 years like the Fatal Attractions event is, which we'll also be covering real soon. Um, in a really special and awesome way. But um, but I think they are, though, or, or at least, you know, kind of recognizing the popularity of the X-Men at the time of their 30th anniversary. Because you have, you know, the main titles. You have Uncanny, you have the 90s X-Men title that launched, of course, uh, X-Factor, X-Force, Excalibur. Then you have the two ongoing solo titles, um, Wolverine and Cable. And then, you know, a slew of minis that come out all in 93 to kind of either intentionally celebrate or coincide with the 30th anniversary of the X-Men. It's pretty cool. And obviously you see your main characters, your main, or not, not main story-wise necessarily, but the most popular characters get a spotlight, right? Um, Sabretooth is kind of the big bad guy, uh, Magneto, obviously is the first villain, gets a huge spotlight in Fatal Attractions. Um, you know, Gambit, one of the, the Johnny-come-lately of the X-Line, who was really popular and becoming more popular because of the cartoon, right? And so, you know, he gets a chance to shine. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I uh, I, I did a little accent in my, in my name, uh, Cameron Sinclair, dear friend of the podcast and sometimes co-host, and we're glad that he kind of got back in the rotation after some time off. Um commented that I had a good Cajun accent on one of the old Gambus Gumbo episodes. I don't know if that's true or not. The one I did just now is probably pretty terrible. But it made me kind of laugh a little bit because I was thinking about accents and Louisiana accents in particular because, you know, I my wife is originally from New Orleans and her family and don't really notice a strong accent in them except for when Janice gets really upset. <laughs> Then sometimes a Louisiana comes out a little bit. I wouldn't call it Cajun, but definitely a, a New Orleans Baton Rouge uh, accent comes out a little bit when she gets pretty frustrated, you know, whether it's with me or the boys or, or just life, right? Uh, so that's funny. Um, but also, uh, I had neighbors. So, all right, so my grandpa Venable, or my paternal grandfather, was from Louisiana. His family grew up there uh, from Monroe, and we were actually able on one of our recent trips to visit that town and go see where he grew up, which is really awesome and fun and just thankful for Denise for taking a sidebar to one of our Louisiana road trips and going down there. Um, I also had neighbors in my house that I grew up in uh, from like middle of elementary school until I moved out, right, as an adult. Um, and they were from Louisiana, at least the parents were born and raised in Louisiana, and they were self-professed Cajuns. They were the Babinos, and they, you know, they did the whole nine yards, like crawfish boils all the time. Um, you know, they were just, they were self-professed uh, Cajuns, and that, I don't remember the kids having accents. Maybe my memory's fuzzy there, but I know the parents definitely did. Uh, Greg and Kitty, uh, great neighbors, but they had, they had pretty thick Louisiana accents. Anyway, and the point I'm trying to eventually get to in this long meandering story through the swamplands of Louisiana is that I have no memory in my mind of my grandpa having an accent, or a Louisiana accent especially. If anything, I kind of thought he had like a Texas accent like my grandma and like my dad a little bit. Um, 
And I don't really feel like I have an accent. Those of you who listen to me may disagree, like especially from other parts of the world. I just kind of have a generic Dallas <laughs> thing that's not really what you think of with Texan or whatever. But anyway, I'll, that doesn't really matter. Um, but anyway, in my mind, I just I don't remember him having an accent. But when I see old videos with him at different ages, right from Obviously, there's not a whole lot of video of him as a young person, but, you know, as a younger adult, or, you know, especially as an, as an older adult, as my grandpa, I, on the videos, that Louisiana accent is thick as, you know, the swamp water. <laughs> and it is, like, it really, it, I remember the first time a few years ago, I was, um, at one of my cousin's house and we had kind of a get together and my aunt brought out some video of us going to like a little it wasn't really a theme park it was um just a little park in san antonio but it had like rides and stuff uh, for kids like it was specifically kids centered and really geared towards the little kids right and um I remember him being in the video and i remember him coming on and talking and i was just kind of floored like what he doesn't—he doesn't sound like that, <laughs> but he did. Obviously, I mean the evidence was there before me. So anyway, I don't know why I just went on an accent tangent. Other than you know, I appreciate Cameron giving me the feedback, <laughs> and if anything, maybe I have a little bit of a genetic marker somewhere in there. But um, but yeah. Anyway, just it really cracked me up and kind of melted my heart a little bit to to hear his voice again after a long time but realize it didn't sound anything like I thought it did <laughs> which is it's weird what memory does or what your perception does right because being a young kid I probably had no idea that I mean accents to me were like oh I'm going to talk in a British accent or a Russian accent or I probably was not immune as a youngster from doing a couple of terribly racist accents which I apologize profusely for um you know but anyway um yeah, you know, you live and learn, right? You, as you get older, and you figure out some things aren't aren't really good things to do, and you quit doing them, right? That's kind of what life is about. Um, anyway, um, we're gonna cover the uh, the Gambit miniseries, and and Grant was gonna join me, and I was, and, you know, obviously would have loved to have had him on here, but but Grant, I know, you know, you're dealing with some the things you've got to take care of, and so know that I miss you, and we will get you on again real soon. Um, but you know what, listeners, you don't have to wait that long, because Grant has an awesome podcast, and he just put out, at the time of this recording, episode three just landed, and that, of course, is the Truth, Justice, and Hope podcast, all about Superman, and he's going, I think the one that just landed is, I haven't listened to it yet, but it's either wrapping up or continuing the post-convergence Lois and Clark series, which was awesome. Oh, which oddly enough ties into this Gambit miniseries. I didn't even realize that until just now. But Lee Weeks, the artist on that, that's uh, Lois and Superman miniseries, um, and I'm getting my titles wrong, so I may have that wrong, but it was the one where, where they get back to the main DC universe and it's a pre, or no, the post-crisis, pre-New 52 Superman and Lois, and of course, John, who will become Superboy. Anyway, a great series. Grant's coverage of the first part of it was fantastic. Can't wait to hear the rest. And yeah, so, you know, if you're missing him like I am today, just go listen. And when you're done, don't listen to this first, right? You gotta, gotta plug my own podcast, and then go listen to Truth, Justice, and Hope. It's a great show about Superman. Um, kind of after the new 52 and the rebirth era, and which is and Grant's just a wonderful podcaster, a wonderful human being. So, Grant, sorry you couldn't, we couldn't make it work this time, but we will definitely get you on again in the near future. And I really appreciate Grant because not only has he been a supporter of the podcast in general, um, but he's probably been the most vocal supporter of this endeavor to do Gambit's Gumbo. <laughs> and so, so, Grant, this one is definitely for you. Um, all right. But before we can get to the miniseries itself, you have one kind of random appearance uh, from Gambit before his miniseries kicks off. It's right around the same time. Um, and it is Nomad number 16. So, Nomad number 16 is... 
honor among, it says thieves, I'm, I think it meant to say thieves, um, and that's uh, written by Fabian Nicieza, pencils by Art Nichols, who I'm not familiar with, uh, inked by Bill Anderson, letters by Jim Novak, and then colors by Tom Smith, uh, Glenn Hurdling and Tom DeFalco are the editors, and there's a tip of the hat to Greg Adams, and I'm not really sure why, but I may, I would have looked it up, but I just now actually noticed it. <laughs> so, um, the cover is also by, um, oh, who is it by? Chad, Chad Baker? He's not the artist in the middle. So, I'm pretty sure it's what it says in the signature. Looks like Chad, Chad Baker. And Ivy, uh, who does the pencils on Moon Knight. Um, let me actually, I know, I know, I feel bad that I messed that up, so let me see if I can find it real fast. I'm gonna go to the Marvel Wiki, I'm gonna stall. That's some great hold music there just for you. And the cover is by S. Clark Hobbicker. I was way off. <laughs> Samson, I was way off. Um, anyway, yeah, um, the cover is actually pretty interesting. So, it's a scene in the swamp. <laughs> it's Battle in the Bayou, and uh, it's a scene in the swamp of Nomad, 90s Nomad, remember, is the uh, the 50s Bucky all grown up, and looking like Renegade, that TV show Renegade, and um, anyway, he's wrestling Gambit in the swamp, Gambit has his bow staff, is charging up with energy, Nomad has a shotgun, he's trying to fire it, but Gambit's pointing it up, he's wrestling, pointing it up in the air, so it's shooting in the air. And it's a fine cover. What's really interesting about it, um, to me anyway, so you have the fight, the struggle in the swamp, and then you have like this foreground of a frog jumping out of the water and a snake curled around a branch with his mouth agape about to try to strike at the frog. What's interesting to me, and actually kind of cool, is that the foreground elements, the, the branch and the snake and the frog, are in very vibrant colors. Like, it looks really good. The art's good, the colors are great, and just really kind of strikes you with the scene of the greens and the browns, and it looks nice, and the different shades. But then the main, the quote-unquote main action in the background, Nomad and Gambit Wrestling, are a very muted, faded color. So it's, your eye is drawn immediately to the foreground and the snake and the frog, kind of the, the circle of life. But, you know, you kind of don't notice as much Nomad and Gambit fighting in the background. And it's almost, I don't know what the intent was there, but whether it was trying to add depth or what, but it almost, it almost makes it play out like the drama is in the nature and in the setting. And we're just insignificant specks, <laughs> right? We're just insignificant insects in the swamp with our, our, you know, inflated drama and melodrama and all that. So I don't know. I don't really know if that has anything to do with what the artist was trying or the colorist was trying to do. But it was just, it's just kind of a cool, different look that you don't normally see, particularly on covers, right? Normally on the covers, you want the action to pop out and jump out and grab someone so they'll buy it. Um, this is an interesting take on the cover. But, anyway, let's get to the inside. So in this one, um, outside New Orleans, Nomad is hired by the Assassin Guild to steal an old photo that the thieves had stolen from the Assassins. Remember all Gamma's backstory, you have the the, the Thieves Guild and the Assassin Guild. Um, anyway, later Gambit attacks Nomad to get the photo back, but the Assassins already have it. He's already delivered it, so kind of a failure there on Gambit's part. Uh, possibly because Baby Bucky is cute, Gambit proposes that Nomad help him steal back the photo that Nomad stole from the Thieves that the Thieves stole from the Assassins that the Assassins now have back in their possession. Got it? All right. 
So they fight some assassins until the patriarch stops it and says he just wants to return the photo to the woman in the photo. You see, it's a photo of him, an assassin, and his love, the thief Spring Song. Uh, for decades, they were forbidden lovers. And now she's dying, and he doesn't care if it's forbidden or not. Uh, he returns the photo in time for her to pass away. Nomad and Gambit question living by rules that only produce regret. So kind of a Romeo Juliet thing, right? But of course, Gambit and and Nomad commentate on, you know, is it really worth perpetuating this cycle of these rules and this feud? When really all it does is lead to heartache and heartbreak. And, you know, it's, it's a sweet issue. Um, there's a couple of things that maybe are worth kind of pointing out here. Um, first, when Nomad, when Gambit attacks Nomad, Nomad, quote-unquote, remembers Gambit dying in Infinity War. But, of course, we know that it was just Nomad fighting the evil doppelganger. I mean, well, I say we. If you read it in the Infinity War and <laughs> the abundance of tie-ins... Um, it's weird that we've already had another Infinity event between now and then. But anyway, with the Crusade. Um, anyway, um, Nomad remembers he fought the Gambit doppelganger and remembers it dying, so he's really confused to see Gambit alive in person. It's also interesting that maybe it's, you know, the bad Ray-Bans. <laughs> the Jose Canseco sunglasses he's wearing here. But, um, I don't know. You would think that, I guess in the art, for the reader, there was so much more distinction between the doppelgangers and the real heroes. And of course, you have things like the Spider-Man doppelganger, which could never be mistaken for Spider-Man. Now, Gambit's one, which is kind of a little bit bigger hair and some fangs and a little more ghastly appearance, tattered clothes. So maybe you could say, well, he just cleaned up and he looks like Gambit. Maybe it's not quite as disparate, but, um, or disparate, I think. Yeah, I always think disparate is wrong because it sounds like desperate, but then if I pronounce it another way, it sounds like a stupid word that doesn't exist. Anyway. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Alright. So, we know, of course, that uh, that it was a doppelganger, not Gambit. And so Gambit's trying to figure out, what do you mean you recognize me? We've never, I've never seen you before. Um, so, also, really badass, and this is the Gambit-focused episode. So, Gambit wins this initial fight while holding the baby. I'm gonna I'm gonna find the pages real fast. So he knocks uh, Nomad over and grabs Baby Bucky and fights with him and wins all while cradling the baby. And that's pretty awesome. I'm pretty looks pretty great for Gambit. It's not awesome that he's endangering the baby. <laughs> I do not uh, support going into battle with a baby in your arms, but um. It is pretty badass that he's able to, like, fight, protect the baby, hold the baby, and still beat Nomad up. It's pretty great, especially in his own book, right? Um, there's also a part where, where Gambit talks about how he has a soft spot for love that breaks the rules. Of course, remember, he had his own forbidden love with Belladonna, and then, fast forward, has a very complex romance with Rogue that, you know, by all factors should not exist because, you know, the limitations of her powers and stuff. But so obviously he, you know, he has a history and a pattern of, of love that goes against the rules and it's cool that he kind of comments on that. So, um, the art is not really great, but the story's pretty sweet. Um, I think overall I'll give Nomad 16, well, I said 3 out of 6 claws, but we're not doing that. My notes are wrong. We're going to do three out of four aces, I think, for Nomad number 16. The story is good enough to kind of make up for the art. All right. Well, now we're ready to do the miniseries. So Gambit number one. Let's see what we have here. Tithing. Story by Howard Mackey. Art by Lee Weeks. Inks by Klaus Jansen. Uh, Buccioletto does the colors. Starkings does the letters. Harrison DeFalco do the edits. And Lee Weeks also does the cover. Now there's a there's a theme on at least three of these miniseries, right? 
where the logo's really big and the character's interacting. So on the Gambit, Sabretooth, and Deadpool miniseries specifically, you have kind of a similar font, a black cover. Now the Sabretooth is die cut. I don't remember whether the Deadpool has a gimmick or not. It may be embossed, like where, where it's bumpy. I'm trying to remember because I don't actually have a physical copy of that one. But then the Gambit one is foil embossed. So it's got gold foil on the letters and the cards that he's throwing, which he is throwing some cards. So he's jumping above the logo and is throwing cards in his big pink arc. And on the bottom it says, at last, the Cajun X-Man in his own limited series. I mean, gimmicks aside and the lack of actual art, I think the only actual art by the penciler would be the figure of Gambit. Uh, it's still a pretty nice cover. Uh, it's a little busy. The Sabretooth and Deadpool ones are also a little busy with the text and the advertising of what's going on. But, um, but it's a cool pose of Gambit. Like, it looks really nice. Alright, so in this one, New Orleans, a New Orleans legend, the Tithe Collector, makes his once-every-seven-year return, which causes the sinister shadow assassin from the Ghost Rider crossover, uh, Gamma's brother-in-law, to break the truce and kill two thieves. thieves. Meanwhile, in the danger room, Gambit and Rogue try to work out their sexual frustration through training. In the control room, Storm wants to make sure they can focus on fighting together, but Wolverine thinks they're pushing too hard. And if he thinks that, <laughs> then they probably are. Uh, Gambit puts himself intentionally into the line of fire, so Rogue has to save him. But he senses company and runs off, leaving her more frustrated. Gambit catches Henri, an old team and buddy, sneaking around the mansion. Wolverine wants to know how he got past security, and Rogue wants to know how Gambit knew when the telepaths did not. But everyone has secrets. Henri begs Gambit to come home for the tithing before taking an assassin arrow in the chest. Wolverine has their scent, but Gambit doesn't want help. Henri Naboe was his brother. Rogue tries to follow him, but Wolverine holds her back. He understands Gambit must settle this alone. Um, as an aside, we meet the external Chandra in Paris. Free. Uh, put a pen in that. Uh, Gambit chases the assassins into town. Back at the mansion, Rogue reveals her love for Gambit to Wolverine. He says, duh, but also tells her not to wait for the perfect conditions, because their life doesn't allow for that as X-Men. And he talks about, he compares the love to Marika, which I enjoy, because that's my favorite Wolverine romance. Um, and also he talks about all the regret in that relationship, how he let Marika kind of push him away from her family obligations. And now she's dead, and it's too late. And so there's a lot of regret, and um, just, yeah, like, like passing on to Rue, like, don't make my mistakes in this. You obviously love him. He obviously has feelings for you. Y'all, I know there's stuff you'll have to overcome and figure out how you're going to do, but put in the energy and time to do it because it's not guaranteed, right? Um, so anyway, um, meanwhile, back in town, Gambit corners the assassins. The mystery man is Julian, his brother-in-law, no longer dead. He reveals that Belladonna is also alive. And he has the power, but the D's have life. So they have this, like, potion that they get from the, the tithing collector. But, and it was split up. Like, their, their guilds made a deal, and the assassins got, like, lots of power, but the thieves got immortality through this potion, and which we'll find out more about as the story goes. So I'll kind of talk about that as we get to those story beats. But, um... Anyway, Julian says, well, he's going to take both during the tithing, and Gambit better stay away. Uh, and then they disappear. And then Gambit tells the X-Men he's going home. Wolverine offers to come, but Gambit says no. Rogue this time will not be held back and insist on coming, and it doesn't matter what Gambit or Wolverine or anyone else says. Um, yeah, so uh, great art, great story. There's enough mystery and enough character beats. We have some Gambit secrets. We find out more about his family and relationships and just a little more into kind of the structure of the guilds and stuff. So there's 
some building of Gambit mythology, which is nice. We don't have one just a whole lot. We've got little pinks here and there. Um, so that's nice. Um, Wolverine comparing GNR to he and Mariko is, is sweet. And then also kind of just his advice, like to kind of take life and and grab it while you can and to love while you can, I think is obviously very good advice. But the way he kind of shares it with Rogue, you know, because he is kind of an uncle figure. Rogue was one of the one of the young girls that Wolverine took under his wing in the uncreepiest way possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, just it just makes sense. So just a couple of really um, interesting art. So Lee Weeks really gets to draw Gambit jumping around on the title page in the James Room. There's a full page splash of Gambit jumping over some energy beams and throwing his cards, and it looks amazing. Um, Rogue looks great. Uh, one of their artistic highlights are there. Uh, Wolverine smoking a cigar in the control room. Um, Rogue's facial expressions as Gambit jumps over little missiles is great. Um, that action all looks really good. A um, couple other highlights. Wing Winks does a really good job with like emotional faces, like facial expressions and body language. Just fantastic there. Uh, one of the Assassin's Guild guys looks like Grifter and even has like a Jim Lee type Wildstorm gun. So he really looks like Grifter. Um, he has the same kind of hair. Um, but yeah, of course, Gambit smokes through the whole issue because it's 90s and your badass heroes always smoke. Um, yeah, the, act, the Gambit action is great throughout. Artistically, just fantastic. And, you know, like I said, the story is pretty good too. Um, just kind of get some more information, some more stuff going on. So we'll go ahead and move to number two, which I believe, let's see, is Honor Among Thieves. Um, no change to creative. So on the cover by Weeks, we have a black background, a big logo again, but this time a spotlight shining on Gambit, and Gambit is on his knees with Belladonna in his lap, wrapped up in Gambit's trench coat, which is maybe one of the first times we see Gambit's costume under the coat. I'm trying to remember, I know we've had like a peek of like the area around his neck, and his pink suit under his chest, and of course we've all seen his legs and stuff, but I guess specifically, we find out what his arms look like, with uh, some pink stripes on the bicep, which is pretty cool. Um, Anyway, he's holding Belladonna, cradling her in his lap, and screaming in anguish at the heavens, and his cards are just flying around. Uh, not lit up, like just regular cards. And uh, it's cool because one of the cards has Lee Week's signature on it. Uh, one of them has his brother-in-law, the Ace of Spades. Or no, that's... Yeah, Spades. Has, um, you know, Julian's shadowy face, and then one of them has the King of Diamonds. It's a Tides Collector. The King of Hearts is his father-in-law. Um, it's just it's a cool cover. It looks nice. Alright, so in Nolens, Gambit goes to Assassin Mansion and confirms that Belladonna, his wife, is alive, even if just barely. As he sits beside her, the assassins enter the room, including Gambit's father-in-law, who demands a duel. When, while fighting, he reveals to the reader that Gambit was adopted, and his brother-in-law is considered an abomination. And Gambit gets a drop on his father-in-law, who commands his execution, but then Rogue crashes through the window and helps Gambit clear the room. Rogue helps Gambit carry off Belladonna, um, and Marius, her father, begs Gambit to share the thieves elixir of life with her to save her, to save his wife. He begs, he just begs him, please. Um, after they leave, uh, Julian comes in and slays his father, uh, promising a new dawn for the Assassin's Guild. So beneath the French Quarter, like underground, um, the, uh, the thin tea families offer they tithe from the elixir of life, which comes from Chandra through the tithe collector. So she supplies with her external and immortality the elixir of life through the tithe collector, and that's how the deal was arranged. Uh, Gambit and Rogue bust in with Belladonna. Remy's adoptive father refuses to aid even after finding out about Henri's death. Uh, Gambit promises he'll get the elixir himself and storms out. 
because uh, while all this was arguing and interrupting, the, the tithe collector just kind of, eh, just kind of back over here and disappeared. Um, the assassins with the thief trader attack the tithe collector outside. They get two out of three vials of the elixir before he escapes. Julian says he'll go to Paris himself to get the last vial and unite the guilds under him, of course. Rogue wants to keep watch over Belladonna at Gamba's old house where he goes at while he goes after the elixir. He tells her of his past as an orphan thief taken in by Jean-Luc Laveau. So, um, we find out about the packs, like between the guilds and genre, the external, and the delivery method of the contract through the tithe collector. Um, that's all pretty cool. Some nice, again, mythology. So the assassins were given power. Which is interesting, because you never really got the impression that the thieves were like slumming it or barely getting by. But in this story, as it turns, you kind of find out that most of the thieves live underground. And they're immortal, but they don't really have much. <laughs> like they're kind of, almost kind of in, in a kind of immortal poverty in a way, like in the in the catacombs beneath New Orleans. Um, and that was their trade-off, right? The assassins get the power, the teens get immortality, and that's why Julian's so interested in like combining them together. He'll take both, right? He wants the power and the life. And in payment for him doing that awesome thing, everyone's going to listen to him. <laughs> so, again, the, the art is, is great. The story continues to move along in a pretty good pace. Um, you know, Gambit is fighting, um, you know, the assassins, and all that looks awesome. His, his father-in-law looks pretty great. Uh, it's a good design with the thieves and assassins. Um, the action just continues to look amazing. Um, for all you Nightwing fans out there, uh, when Gambit carries his wife out of the room, um, he's got some pretty good cake there. Um, if you want to check that out. For all you Nightwing bum lovers, Gambit uh, gives them some run for his money. Um... And then, of course, just, yeah, yeah, just more action. It all, it all looks so good. This looks really fantastic. Um, and we meet, kind of giving Chandra some context. We, meet, we see that Gideon is also there with her as a, for, as a fellow external. Alright, so Gambit number three. I believe this is the Benefactress. With all the same credits. This cover is maybe my favorite of the series. So this time we have a background that goes from dark green and fades to light green. Like a gradient color scheme. But then the Gambit logo, which is still really big, is in like almost a neon green with dark green border. It looks great. And then we have Gambit standing over a fallen... Either theme or assassin. He's kind of dressed in, in fancy clothes. But Gambit is, is crouched over him, looking over his shoulder. He's got a handful of cards that are energizing. His trench coat is blowing behind him. And then jumping from the logo down towards Gambit is the black, shadowy, almost venom-looking figure of uh, Julie and his brother-in-law. Um, so it's, it's a fantastic cover. It looks amazing. Like, it's great. Alright, so in this one, uh, Gambit goes to Paris to find Chandra, but Chandra finds Gambit. Turns out they're old flames, of course they are. <laughs> um, Gambit tries to charm the elixir off of her, but she explains how she started, actually founded both the thieves and assassin guilds, but she feels the old rivalries old rivalries have played out. She offers the elixir to Gambit if he will kill his father. Who she has handy right there for him to kill. Um, meanwhile, back in New Orleans, uh, Rogue accidentally touches Belladonna, absorbing memories of her relationship with Gambit. A tender physical relationship that she feels she can never have. 
uh, back in Paris, uh, sorry, Paris, uh, Julian and his assassins bust into Chandra's quarters. He attacks Chandra, blaming her and the externals for bringing him back to life, and he didn't want that. Gambit intervenes as Gambit and Julian fight. Um, Gambit's dad comes between them, and he's slashed up by Julian. Uh, Chandra. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Chandra blasts Julian out the window. She allows Gambit to leave for saving her life, but now they're even. She takes his dad, but before he goes. I'm sorry. He. Man, my handwriting's terrible. Um, Gambit takes his dad, but before he goes, he gives Chandra one last kiss, secretly grabbing the vial from her bosom. When uh, Chandra later realizes she's been played, she sends the Tithe Collector back to New Orleans to tell both guilds that Gambit has betrayed them, so they'll all try to kill him. So again, awesome art, good drama, good story. Um, There's a scene when Gambit's like in this nightclub trying to find Chandra, or maybe it's a little casino. And he's, you know, 90s to the max. He's got sunglasses, he's smoking inside. He's got a, his long hair and a ponytail. He's got ripped up gray jeans tucked into boots. He has a tight shirt on and a leather jacket. Um, and he's ready to roll. Um, but yeah, of course, then Chandra finds him. There's a part where someone asks for a light. And, or no, he asks for a... So, so why he's asking for Chandra, people get nervous. And the security takes him out. They're going to kill him. And he asks for a last cigarette. And he's like, oh, but I'm a lighter. And so one of the goons hands him a lighter. And instead of lighting a cigarette, he lights up the lighter and throws it at him and causes, of course, an explosion. It's a pretty pretty fun scene. Um, and then, yeah, there's more, more great art. Um, you know, it's really, really the drama between Rogue and an unconscious Belladonna and just the jealousy and almost resentment that she has because it's not even like, oh, I'm mad. I mean, because there's obviously the initial kind of drama and consternation of, oh, I didn't know you were married. But this feels like less of that. No, that's definitely a valid gripe <laughs> on Rose's part. Maybe you should have told me about your wife that you're still technically married to, right? Um, but it feels much less about that. Like, kind of, it's less like catty jealousy. Then, just a really like deep sadness that she has the memory of their relationship and just how physical and intimate it was, and it's not her. And at this point, she feels like it can never be her, and that just really does a number on her mentally, obviously, right? As it would anyone, but just the way it's portrayed and written and drawn is is really powerful. It's just a really really powerful scene. Um. Finding out that Chandra and Gambit were lovers once upon a time is is both funny and not surprising. Um, and the way he gets the vial where he like trick kisses her, like puts his team skills to use and takes it out of her breast, out of her bust. Um, and she had it, you know, typical bad woman style, had it tucked in between her boobs and her shirt. And he, he manages to sneak it out. Why he flabbergasts her with a passionate kiss. Um, and of course, there's just more great art of Gambit fighting. Nice, classic Gambit poses. Um, you know, Lee Weeks picks up right where Jim Lee and Andy Kubert left off. Like, he's he's doing some stellar, stellar work on this series. Um, well, that's going to take us to the conclusion, Gambit number four. This one is... Thief of Time, or Thief of Time, with all of the same credits, except this time Jason Gorder has an art assist. So maybe getting a little too close to the deadline for weeks and he got some help. Um, the cover by weeks is a blue background with a white big logo, but Gamma's in front of the logo. It's a close-up on his face and his hands. His hands crossed in the X below his chin, and he's got cards spread out in both hands went up and he's yelling at the reader and he's all in orange and purple just almost glowing and crackling energy it looks pretty great as well another another fantastic cover 
Right, so back in New Orleans, Gambit steals the last vial from Julian, who reveals he needs it to survive. So not only was he hoping to get it and, like, bring eternal life to the assassins, he actually needs it just to stay alive. Um, otherwise he'll go crazy because he was brought back to life and resurrected the way that he was. Which isn't really ever fully explained. We just know that the externals did it. Chandra and Gideon brought him back to life for unknown reasons and really through an unknown process. But he kind of loses his mind, but he needs this elixir to kind of calm down and stay alive. Um, when Gambit then, not totally without sympathy, takes Elixir and Julian to his father, who confesses that a rare side effect of the Elixir's physical is physical and mental decay. It doesn't happen to everyone, but sometimes when... Oh, so I guess it was. He was resurrected by the Elixir, and then also need but needs continual supplements of it to for the resurrection to keep, I guess. Right? And so, most of the time, people take the elixir and they just get eternal life, or at least until the next tithing comes around. So, seven years, really, of life, I guess, is the actual math. Um, but every now and then, there's a, there's a rare side effect that you have mental and physical decay over that time period, and so you have to have the elixir to, to save yourself and your sanity. And he brings that up now as well because... If Gambit's planning on using it on Belladonna, there is a, an off chance that she won't come back exactly the same. And so, um, anyway, the Tithe Collector shows up with T's and assassins the light to kill Gambit, but he uh, charges a statue of a saint in the church and uses the massive explosion to escape. Unfortunately, both guilds um, Throughout the city are hunting him, and by the time he fights his way home, the Tithe Collector has both Rogue and Belladonna. Uh, Gambit falls to beg, but is really a ploy as he charges the Tithe Collector's coat, um, blowing him out the window. The Tithe Collector has like this long trench coat, and it touches the ground, so when Gambit falls prostrate before him, he puts his hand on the... Kind of reminds you of the, the Bible story... Um, or Jesus is walking around and there's this guy who's sick or paralyzed or whatever and he just reaches out and barely touches the hem of the coat, it says. It's kind of that same idea, right? He just barely puts his finger on the edge of the Tide Collector's coat, but he's able to charge it and blow him, <laughs> blow him back pretty good. Um, and out the window. So as Gamera prepares the elixir for Belladonna, Rogue finally says, I love you, those three little words. But Gambit is unfortunately distracted by Julian jumping through the window back inside. Uh, he stabs Gambit in the hand, destroying the elixir as well. Uh, Gambit's father-in-law busts in, uh, filling Julian with crossbow arrows. Uh, Chandra also shows up and tells the assassins to kill Gambit and all the thieves, and she'll make a new pact to give them all the power. But they refuse to do so, and Chandra poofs away, Gambit's father thanks him and asks him to leave and never come back. <laughs> in a desperate attempt, uh, Gambit squeezes some elixir from the sheet where it spilled onto Belladonna's lips. She awakes but has no memory of her former life, including Gambit. So, and kind of the question is begged, is this one of those side effects they talked about? So is he, is he the elixir on his own? Or is this rogue having stolen some of her memories? Like, like maybe they hadn't had it. Because, right, so the idea for rogue's powers, right? She temporarily takes powers and memories. And rogue's been wrestling with these memories. And, you know, at this point, there's no real, like, hard and fast rule. Like, oh, well, she, if she touches you for X seconds, she keeps your memories and powers for X minutes or hours, right? There's no, like, formula for Rogue's power. I don't think there ever is, but there's certainly very loosely defined at this point in time. Except for the, the you know, the, the exception that's the rule where she she touched Carol Danvers so long that she absorbed all that permanently. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, the idea is either the, the side effect of the elixir caused memory loss in Belladonna, or is the idea that Rogue had her memories, they had not returned to Belladonna yet, 
So since she was resurrected or woken up without them, or before she got them back, then they can't come back now. Or is it some combination of the two? Is it a combination of the elixir and rogue's actions? I don't know. It's an interesting thing to kind of think about, but it's definitely not really explained why. We just know that she doesn't remember Gambit, and it kind of gives Gambit a convenient out of the marriage, right? You know, Belladonna was introduced and invited a lot of drama into this love triangle between Gambit, Rogue, and Belladonna. She was died. She was died. And I speak English. Um, she was killed in that Ghost Rider story, which kind of gave Gambit, kind of let Gambit off the hook. Obviously, he was mourning of her passing, but he was kind of free to pursue Rogue because his wife was dead. Then in this story, we bring her back and introduce that drama again. But at the end, Gambit's off the hook again because she has no memory of their marriage, their relationship, the love she feels for Gambit. She's a complete stranger to him. Now, again, the marriage is not officially annulled as far as we see on the page, so I guess Gambit is still technically married. But um, but there's no there's no relationship left to speak of, so he's free to go off and, and pursue romance with Rogue. And it's also interesting because Rogue finally gathers up the strength and resolve to say I love you and Gambit's too busy to really even listen to her. And I'm wondering what impact that will have on the relationship going forward. It's like, well, I finally, I bared my soul to you and you were just, you were too distracted. I mean, some of it was valid distraction, right? But it, even the way he, he treats it though, is almost like, a, hey, not now, not now. I got, I got stuff to deal with. Um, and so... Yeah, I just wonder if that would drive a wedge, or I, I know it's going to be a long-ass time before the relationship really turns into like a full-blown, like, we are together, but, um, yeah, it's just interesting, it'll be interesting to kind of track that um, as we go forward. Um, so anyway, uh, to finish out the story, uh, Gambit looks to celebrate with Rogue, but she's in emotional turmoil and flies off in a fit. Gambit is left sad and alone with his cigarette. <laughs> and there's an interesting line. Uh, so it talks about how Gambit will be a legend now, uh, and you know, a morality teller or whatever. The dark, handsome thief sneaking through the shadows of the night. The thief who tosses lightning from his hands and steals the heart of your girl. The thief searching for the love he can never have. The thief, the traitor to all. Now, that's referring to his own story, right? To this miniseries we just read, where he had to, in a way, he betrayed the externals. He betrayed Chandra by stealing the elixir. He betrayed both guilds, the, the, the thieves and the assassins. Um, and even kind of betrays Rogue in a way, though not necessarily intentionally, uh, by not acknowledging her um, her strong emotional connection at, in the middle of the fight, right? Um but also, we know what Gambit's future holds. And even not knowing how the story goes, we've seen the hints from Bishop's timeline of LeBeau as the witness, who knows about the traitor to the X-Men, and Bishop, of course, suspects that he could be the traitor. And so, he's not only it's not only a reference of him kind of having some treacherous actions in this story, though all, you know, probably for the best, but then also kind of leaves the story hanging on the idea of Gambit as a traitor in general, and how does that apply to the X-Men. So this this miniseries actually does quite a bit. Um, and it's really, really good. The art, again, in this issue is fantastic. The writing is fantastic. I, I would say some of Mackie's stronger work that I've read for 90s Marvel so far uh, is in this, this miniseries. Um, and it's really... It, uh, to me... and some is the art helping, but it really lands the punches that it swings, I feel like, for the most part. Um, it adds a lot to Gambit's mythology. It adds a lot to his character. It adds a lot to the relationship with Rogue. The only thing I would say, maybe, is we don't get a whole lot of her... Well, we do, though, with her kind of resentment about the relationship after she absorbs Belladonna. So, yeah, I think we get some pretty good character work with her as well. Um, so yeah, just a great, great miniseries. I really enjoyed the heck out of it quite a bit. I'm, I don't really know how I, I completely missed this growing up. 
Like, I think I knew that it came out, but and I loved Gambit, so I don't know why I would have skipped it. I just did. I think I was running out of steam, right? It's, it's kind of, if I'm doing, if looking at the dates, I mean, this, this takes place before Fatal Attractions because Wolverine hasn't lost his stuff <laughs> or disappeared yet or left the team yet. Um, but I think it came out around towards the end of Fatal Attractions. Um, so I was very quickly dropping comics <laughs> at that time. Um, so it's possible I just decided not to spend the money on it. But um, I wish I would have bought it back then because it's great. I mean, the concepts are pretty good. It's very well written. You know, the family elements. It's all just, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to give the Gambit miniseries as a whole four out of four aces. Like, I, I think it was that good. Um, I really enjoyed it. Really had a lot of fun with it. So, love to hear your thoughts on any of the kind of the three uh, miniseries here. The Gambit, Sabretooth, or Deadpool, which I won't be covering the Deadpool one. Um, I know there's some, you know, eventual connection between... And I haven't read it yet, and I did not read it growing up. So I don't know if, the, if we're already to the point where we're connecting his powers to Wolverine yet or not, but Wolverine's not in the, the miniseries, so won't really be talking about it specifically on here. And I'll probably tweet about it when I read it. Um, but yeah, yeah, really enjoyed this, like a lot. Lee Weeks is awesome. Uh, Mackie really brought his A-game, and that makes for a great combination. So... That's the Gambit miniseries. Hope you enjoyed our coverage. And um, again, go check out Grant on his podcast, the Truth, Justice, and Hope podcast about Superman. And for the podcast of Ghost Knit, of course, you can like the Facebook page. Twitter is at Snitcast. Show notes and stuff at uh, snitcast.podbean.com. And as far as what's next, uh, probably drop this either around the same time or possibly at the same time as the Sabretooth miniseries and then right hot on the heels of that will be the Fatal Attractions episode. And that's kind of all part of, like I said, my my celebration of nine years, the flashback episode celebration of 30 years of X-Men. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a nice little perfect storm of just celebrating stuff. So, as always, guys, um, please stay safe and well. Oh, also... Uh, be recording again soon with the Excaliburus and starting the trial of Magneto and current day stuff. So that's pretty exciting. But yeah, like I was saying, um, please everyone stay safe, stay well out there. I know we got the variant kind of raging. So just, you know, be careful, be safe, and uh, much love. So until next time, everyone, hugs and snacks. Bye-bye. And snacked.